Then he goes through a recap of the history. Now, this isn't like history in like reading about events. This is more of a history of like, and then we went here, and then we went here, and then we went here, and we went here. And a lot of that's not really just that interesting. And it's like reading a map, literally. And so you're only interested if you're going to take the road trip. In this case, once again, I mentioned the other way is like, yeah, these names feel kind of boring, but remember these names are so important because they're the key to archeological discoveries, which is the key to learning everything we know about the Bible that basically proves everybody wrong every time they say that it exists. Okay, so when they're like, oh, King David never existed, your Bible made that up. And then about like 10 years ago, we found a inscription of King David, the King of the Jews from the exact, and they're like, oh, okay. Pilate, he was all made up. There was no Pilate. The Roman Empire was well documented. You would think, and then we found this pillar that said Pilate. The, <laughs> of Caesarea, and we're like, oh, okay, maybe he did exist. Well, Isaiah or Jeremiah, he never existed, never existed. And then we found a seal of Jeremiah's scribe that was left over. And now they're like, Hezekiah, he never existed. And we just found literally within the last month or a couple weeks, actually, they just discovered a seal of Hezekiah. So you have to realize like these names are what tells us we should dig here because if we dig here, we're going to find something about Hezekiah. And eventually we do, and then eventually all those naysayers get proved wrong, and once again, the Bible. So what you need to realize is that nothing in the Bible has been proven wrong, and everything in the Bible hasn't been proven yet, <laughs> because it's constantly being proven over and over and over again. And so God goes through their journey, and mostly what it is here is to detail God's faithfulness to bring into the promised land. It's mostly to detail God's faithfulness to bring them to the promised land. Now that they're at the promised land, in the rest of chapter 33 and going to chapter 34, God lists out the boundary allotments. So this is where he gets into the, and this tribe will live between this mountain and that mountain and that city and that kind of stuff. And remember, this is really crucial because this becomes good for the map makers. And like I said, when we get to the book of Joshua, when we actually enter the promised land, I'll show you a map of what exactly these tribal allotments look like. And, and it'll be even more significant when we get to Joshua. And so he goes through and basically says, this is the western border of Israel, this is the eastern border, this is the northern border. And it basically reads like you're reading Google Maps as far as terrain and territories go. However, you must understand something very important. As much as this is exciting as reading Google Maps, the reality is this is one of the most important two chapters in all the book of Numbers. Why? Because this is God's faithfulness to the promise of the land. They are finally here as God promised. And you might think, now listen, you need to think of this way. If somebody comes into work and says, well, this is my land. Like, okay, you go visit somebody. You go up to Delaware. Somebody just bought a brand new plot of land, 10 acres of land, some that kind of stuff. And you're sitting there like, yeah, my property goes from that tree all the way to that creek bed and over here to that. And you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. And most of what you're thinking is, okay, big whoop, that's your land, it's not my land. And if anything you're thinking, yeah, but it would be really cool if I had that much land. 
but at the same time, I don't really want to take care or cut all that grass. Okay, all those different thoughts here and here, but most of you are like, okay, that's, that's kind of boring. I don't really care where your land end, ends. But if you've been living like, if you've been renting your entire life, and you've got this dream of getting out there and kids running free and being able to explore in the woods and that kind of stuff, and, and you've been working your entire life to get this, and you and your kids have been cooped up in this small little apartment, two-bedroom thing, and, and there's, no, there's nowhere for them to ride their bikes because it's a parking lot, and, and there's no sense of backyard, and there's no sense of adventures, and, and there's no sense of escaping your kids when you need a break, and you finally have worked your entire life to get it, and you finally get this land, and it's a huge blessing. God was totally in it. And you, you get the land, and the realtor says, your property goes from, you're fascinated. You're totally listening. You're totally enthralled. And you're excited because this is your land. Because you're going from a two-bedroom apartment to land that you own, that you've worked for, that you've finally gotten there after years of wanting this. And your kids are able to go free and roam and all this kind of stuff. You're just super excited about this boring city border disputes. (laughs) That's what you need to think about it for Israel. Israel has for 40 years wandered. And before that, it was back to Abraham. And God has finally brought them here after a giant 38 sinful roadblock. (laughs) And they're finally at the promised land. There's nothing that's going to keep them. The only thing that might have thought they is the Reubenites and the Gadites, but that's been kind of worked out. And they're finally there, and God says, your land is da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you're soaking this all in, because the minute he says the tribe of Ephraim, and you're Ephraim, you're listening to every single detail, because when you enter that land, and about seven years from now, that land is going to be yours. And you remember what it was like to be a slave, or you remember your parents telling you all the horror stories of being a slave in Egypt. Imagine a black slave in America finally getting their own land. Every little, your land goes from this, 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 is going to be so precious and meaningful to them. And you have to realize that this feels boring to us, but is the most exciting, most, the greatest demonstration of God's faithfulness, one of the most important passages in all of Numbers, because this is God's promise. Does that make sense? And they are here. They can literally look over the valley and see, that's going to be my backyard. Okay, they're finally there. They're finally there. Any questions, comments? So chapter 35. Now we get into the Levitical cities. Now remember, Levi, under the judgment of Jacob in Genesis 49, was not allowed to have his own land because he committed the sin of murdering all the Shechemites using the Abrahamic covenant. So Levi was to be scattered. But because Levi redeemed himself by standing next to Moses against the golden calf and those who worshipped him, he's allowed to be priests. So God then says, you can have your own cities. So he is now going to detail out the Levitical cities. These are the cities that the Levites are allowed to live in. So the Levites received four towns for each of the 12 tribes. So each tribe was going to have four Levitical cities in it. 
So these are cities that were going to be mostly Levites. It didn't have to be only Levites, but it would be pretty much all Levites and their families. So they were given their city. They're going to run it themselves, and they're going to be scattered throughout the tribe because the whole idea of the Levites was that they were to teach the people who God is. And so in some ways, their scattering was a curse because they don't get their own land. But now God is using their scattering as a blessing because now Levites are going to be in every single tribe where if they hadn't been scattered, they would have been in one tribe only and everybody would be like really far away from all the pastors and ministers, so to speak. So each tribe is given four cities. So what they're doing now is they have to come in and adjust this because Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh weren't supposed to be over there initially. So now Moses has to come in and assign some cities for those territories east of the Jordan River as well. Most of these Israelite cities um, lived on more, no more than 10 miles apart from each other. So a lot of these cities were really close together. You have to remember, too, just like we today tend to like gather together and stack on top of each other, people in the ancient world did that as well. So you go to Cincinnati and Columbus and Cleveland, and there's like tons of people there. And you get an airplane and fly over Ohio, and it's just land, land, land. You go out west, and it's land. Okay, like there's a statistic that I, a really reputable one that said you can pretty much get everybody in the world in the state of Texas living comfortably. But we just, we just, we scatter and we stack on top of each other. So the reality is on these cities. Now, the other thing he's going to do is assign six of these Levitical cities are to be cities of refuge. So there are going to be six cities in Israel that are cities of refuge. Now, this is what it means to be a city of refuge. This is for murder. Now, what it is, is these cities are security places. They're like when you're playing capture the flag or tag, this is base. This is neutral territory. So here's the thing. If somebody is guilty of murdering somebody else or falsely accused of murder, they are to run as fast as they can to Levitical City. Because in the ancient world, there was no police force there was no military. There was nobody to like hire the cops to go out and track down the perpetrator and get justice for you. So God commanded, the, everybody in the ancient world did it this way, and God approved this kind of function in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and said, that's the job of the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman is the next relative in line to you. So, for example, if you kill my brother... It is up to me to avenge my brother's death. There are no cops to do that. There is no execution, no judge, anything like that. So it's up to me to kill you because the, death, the penalty for murder is death and I have every right by God to kill you and it not be murder. So that's my job. The problem with that is God also understands. See, he's working within what the culture has at that time period. And he's not ready to say, okay, what you do is create a police force and this is how you regulate it. The reality is they don't have that. So he says this is what it is. But he also understands that we're corrupt. And in the human heart, if you kill my brother, I'm probably going to be mostly ruled by my vengeance and my anger than my actual need for justice. And chances are, too, I might be blinded to all the evidence that you didn't really do it. Or I might be blinded to the evidence that it was just an accident. And so this makes sure that both parties are taken care of. So it's up to me 
to exact justice on this guy. At the same time, this guy can flee to a city of refuge where I'm not allowed to touch him if he's in that city. Now, what this does is he makes it to that city, and that guarantees that he's going to get a trial. So now what I do is I'm coming to this neutral territory, and I present all the evidence that I have for why he is guilty of my brother's murder and why I think it was premeditated or intentional. He then presents all the evidence he has for why he didn't do it or why it was not, it was manslaughter, what we know as manslaughter accidental, or maybe he has no evidence because he did premeditate it. The Levites then are responsible for hearing all the evidence and in giving a verdict. If they rule that he's not guilty, then I cannot touch him. He is free to leave the city, live his life, and if I kill him, then his family has every right to execute justice on me, and I'm running towards the Levitical city, and chances are I'm going to have no evidence in my defense because I was already at that Levitical city saying I want to kill him, and the priest said, you can't kill him, he's not guilty, and then I went and killed him. So you're pretty much going to die. So that's how that works. Now, if they rule that he is guilty of killing my brother and was premeditated, then he is to be dragged out of the city of the Levite so I can kill him. Not allowed to kill him in the Levitical city, but I'm allowed to drag him out, and the priest will help me drag him out, and then he will be executed right then and there. And justice has been done. There's been a court case, and the evidence is presented to unbiased people, and they've given their verdict, and I'm the executioner. And so that's the way it works. If he's declared guilty of murder, but it's manslaughter, then I can't touch him either because the penalty for manslaughter is not death. So I have to leave, and I can never touch him. However, he's never allowed to leave the Levitical city ever. He has to live there the rest of his life, or she has to live there the rest of her life. Because what it does is it says, you're not guilty of murder. This was not an intentional thing. Therefore, you don't, you're, there's no justice in killing you. However, you still took a person's life because you were careless or whatever. And there's still consequences of that. So you are now going to be living in the city the rest of your life. So you're going to lose your lands. Now, your, your family can take care of your land. So you've got a choice here. If you're married with kids and that kind of stuff, they go on without you. And you hope that you have brothers and uncles or whatever that can help take care of your kids and your land. Or you can choose to move your family into the Levitical city with you. But you don't have lands. And the Levites don't have lands either because they're not allowed to have lands. So you're going to have to find another way of taking care of your family and providing. So it's kind of like being in jail in a way. And so you're there for the rest of your life. So there are consequences. You're free to have a life. You can do whatever you want. You're not, and it's better than prison because you're not trapped inside this cell with a whole bunch of hardened criminals. They're going to end up like corrupting you over time too because we've seen that actually happen in prison cases. So you're with really godly people. <laughs> and so there's like not chances of you getting corrupted with a bunch of other murders. And everybody who might actually be there guilty of murder all there because of manslaughter too. And so they're not evil people intended. So you can live your life and have a house and that kind of stuff, but it's still going to be a seriously adjusted, somewhat difficult life because there are consequences. And that's the beauty of it. The only time you're ever allowed to go free and leave the city is that the high priest dies. And the idea is that the death of the high priest atones for your sin, and you're allowed to leave the city and you're free. And that's what the city of refuge is. And that's how it operates.
And so there's six of these scattered throughout the land of Israel. Now remember, this whole country is only the size of New Jersey. So yes, it'll be some time getting there. If you've killed somebody, you're going to run as fast as you can. But we're not talking about like going to China on foot. So, or even across America. Here's what's interesting. You're free when the high priest dies. And what's very interesting is when you get to the Second Testament, we're all guilty of crime and punishments, but when our high priest dies, all of a sudden we're now free of that guilt of our sin. And there's almost a foreshadowing here being set up to Christ as our high priest. And we're all guilty of death under the Levitical Mosaic law, but when our high priest dies, his death pays for our sins, and now we're free of that debt and penalty. And so there's a foreshadowing here of Christ being our Levitical city that we're all trapped in, but then we're free of that sin when he dies. This practice ensured that there was justice for all parties, that nobody could just do whatever was right in their own heart. At the same time, nobody was free to just get away with whatever they wanted. But at the same time, this is a pretty good, efficient system when there isn't like cops and court systems all over the place to go to in order to investigate this out. Hey, Corey, how would, they, how would the cities be able to live if they didn't have any land to work? Did they receive tithes from? Yes. Okay. Now remember, according to Leviticus, except for the burnt offering, every sacrifice that you bring of the peace offering and the uh, reparation offering and the wine offering, the grain offering and the fellowship offering, um, those all required you to give a portion of that to the priest. And then you're required to tithe as well. So if you go off to war and you come back with spoils, you tithe that. And you tithe that to the tabernacle, but then the tabernacle equally distribute, just like I had to equally distribute the tithe among all the people who didn't fight in the battle, the priests also at the tabernacle divvy the tithe up among all the Levitical cities and stuff. And so, yeah, but that means the Levites are completely dependent upon the tithe of the people. And so they have to trust that the people will feel guilty enough <laughs> to sacrifice enough and to love God enough to tithe enough. In the same way that your pastor is completely dependent upon the tithe of the people or people who work for Campus Crusade for Christ or other parachurch ministries where they are um, donation-oriented are completely dependent upon that. So it will be a lot like that. So yes. So that's how the Levitical city is. Now, they could also create their own business. So as people start becoming more diversified and they pick up a trade of like wood carvings or fashioning metal or some other things that other people need, they could be selling that too to make a living. It's, they're not, it's not that they're not allowed to make a living other ways. They're just not allowed to own land, which makes it hard for crops and animals. But there's other things that they can trade 